grab that. Well, no, you're good. Morning. Uh, Joe, you want to come up here? Um, <clears throat> yeah, awesome. Awesome to be here. Thank you for joining us, visitors, guests. So glad you're here. Um, you, most people attached to the church know that I'm really connected with 24-7 prayer. We have the amazing Rene Boucher, part of the national leadership team here, helping drive things forward. But Joe is on the national leadership team. He leads globally with 24-7 prayer. He heads up all of their leadership training uh, for the U.S. and partly all over the globe, right? Uh, so he's helping shepherd that, but he's here with us today. So while he was here, I thought, let's hear some things from him. I don't know what he's got to share, but this guy is full of wisdom. He gets Jesus, and he has the vision for where we're trying to go. So it's just great to have him here. So we'd love to just hear whatever you want to share with the church. Thanks, Scotty. Uh, I greet you from the great state of Wisconsin. Uh, I am a born and bred cheesehead, so go Packers, you know. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I have the pleasure of being uh, the inheritor of a great grace of spiritual parents in my own biological parents. Uh, my parents received a whole Jesus freak hippie generation in my living room. Maybe it was some of you guys. But, uh, <laughs> but we had a big house and they had big hearts. And my mom and dad came at uh, disciplers and spiritual uh, mom and dad for a whole generation. And so I grew up observing and being imprinted with this understanding that the kingdom is a family, and that the kingdom of God and the, the church operates like a big, beautiful, extended family, and that there's something about a blessing of receiving from generations, you know, and that in this house, you've got some, some generations that you're building as the inheritance of God's family, so it's really beautiful. You know, if I were to model something, I'd probably call up you know, Mama Renee, and uh, have her lay hands on Scotty back, and then Scotty would come and get Jack up here and lay hands on him and speak a blessing over him. And then Jack would take one of, the, one of the kids and announce a blessing over that, and then we'd see this flow of the, the purposes of God, right? Landing generationally into our hearts and into our relationships. Oh, I got to stand center. That's right. I'm on camera. Sorry, I grew up a theater kid, so, um, uh, but uh, and I'm not sure if you have dancing here yet quite, but, um, but I just wanted to share a little bit about that, that I recognize that in this house and what I think Scotty's leadership is trying to bring is this beautiful, um, understanding of the the church not only as a family but one that can uh, sow into a generational blessing and that that creates a safe place to receive people and let them grow up into who they are in Christ and mature into this beautiful family of God and then you've got something to share with the world you know we've got a super broken world with a lot of orphan-hearted people just lost and if they come into an environment where, you know, um, who greeted me this morning? Where are you? 
you, but uh, where's, where's the, like, the grandma of the house that's just this, like, oh, I, was it Sandy? It's probably Trudy, because I, I couldn't get out of her, like, space. She was like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But um, when you get that sort of welcome and you're received and you're, you're known, there's something that happens to your heart that says, you know, maybe I could find a home here where the love of God would bring healing to my whatever journey of life has brought me and come into the grace of a healing house of God and then grow up into you know, my sonship or my daughterhood and stand confidently in the world, you know. So I bless your house with that grace, and uh, that's about all I want to share, so thanks. I feel like at that point I should say, church is over, now we're doing First Corinthians. Thanks, Joe. I mean, it's amazing having Joe here, having Renee part of what we're doing, Jack. Yeah. There's other people. Jeremiah's here and his family. Uh, they're, they're doing, God is doing some awesome things around, around the place. Let me, let me uh, just tell you a little story. So Friday night, that was two nights ago, right? Friday night, I got invited to go downtown with Renee and Jack and Joe and some others to a worship event that was happening in downtown Portland. And there's a, an old restaurant pub that's been bought over. It's under Burn, uh, Morrison Bridge, Burnside Bridge, Morrison Bridge, under Morrison Bridge. And, uh, and what was going on, a church has bought this place, they're using it, but there's this group of young adults from all over the city who gather right now, it's about once a month, just to worship with the understanding that they're doing it in secret under a bridge in downtown Portland. No one knows they're there, but by standing there worshiping for hours on end, they're transforming the city, right? And so we talked last week about the hope there is for Portland. Like Friday night, while you were sitting watching Netflix, reading a newspaper, having dinner, or doing something that you shouldn't have been doing, uh, there was a group of young adult kids in downtown Portland worshiping their hearts out to change our city. Um, and they'd asked Renee at the beginning, hey, Renee, would you just say something? They call her Mama Renee. She's a mother of prayer for Portland. So they say, Renee, would you just say a few words? And Renee said, you know, I've been here in Portland for thir- like ministering for 30 years. I started prayer walking the streets of Portland ministering to homeless youth. And I would walk around the city praying that God would raise up a generation to lead the country forward, to lead the church. She's sitting in her, she's 30 years ago, right? She's sitting in a room full of 20 to 25-year-olds. So she's like, most of you weren't born when I started praying that prayer. So her prayers were, were, were causing couples to come together to conceive a child, to raise up, to fulfill the vision. We're blessed by that. I was blessed by that. And I was thinking about us as a church. Like we've been in survival mode, right? How do we survive? How do we stop the church from dying? How do we get into a place where we can reach the neighbors? This isn't just about us in this generation reaching the people next to us. This is how do we uh, start pouring out what needs to be poured out so that the kids that aren't even born yet uh, are being raised up, ready to take the mantle. There is a child that isn't born yet that's going to be the pastor of this church. 
We're going to pray that child into existence. We're going to pray them to raise up in the faith and fall in love with Jesus. And one day, they're going to stand here and they're going to lead this church in a direction uh, that I could never dream of taking it. Um, so it's just exciting. It's exciting to have people like this as part of our church. It's exciting to have our vision taken beyond the here and now and beyond the geographical location we're in, even to think ahead to the future, to generations that aren't here yet, and the role that God wants you to play in bringing those people into fruition. So, man, Joe, you've got me going. <laughs> so, like, oh, where's this sermon content? Um, okay, let, let me, one la- last side note. Um, I need to practice this because I'm not good at this. I'm told I'm not good at celebrating, right? I, I see a goal, I meet a goal, and I move on to the next goal. So I'm just going to take a moment and say this. We finished our floors. <laughs> so you can come into our house and not trip up <laughs> other than on all the kids' toys and my socks. So... Uh, but the floor is finished, you're going to be able to come over and, and, and join us in this. So anyway, I'm going to try and fly through what we've got today. We are, uh, we're walking through this series uh, in Acts, looking at the book of Acts. Why are we doing it? We're trying to re, uh, rediscover the missional heart of the early church and then rediscover for ourselves our identity as sent people in the world. Because let's just face it, as Christians in the West who are comfortable, the idea of being sent is, is a lot less attractive than sitting together with a bunch of people we really like, having our needs met. So we need to rediscover the vision of what it means to be sent. And so we're looking through the book of Acts and trying to rediscover what, what is written there about who the church is supposed to be. Um, at this point in chapter 20, we're in uh, Paul's third missionary journey as he's traveling around, ministering and encouraging people. There's maps on your table if you want to follow where we're going and see some of the place names. Um, But we're going to look at uh, Acts 20. I'm going to read through the passage. And then as we go back through at the end, I'm going to look. This is the, in this passage is the only time in the book of Acts where we have a record of what Paul preached when he stood in front of a group of Christians. All of the book of Acts is Paul declaring the truth to the non-Christian world. So this is the first message, the only message that he gives to a group of Christians. We're going to look at it uh, and and we're going to break it apart a little bit or a lot. So uh, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 1, let's, let's read along. Uh, when the uproar had ended, remember there was a big riot in Ephesus, uh, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by a whole host of people from different places he ministered. Listen to the list. Sopater, son of Paris from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, uh, Tychicus, Trophimus from the province of Asia, all places that he's just been ministering. He's gathering up, kind of like Rene, gathering up all of these people from around him to take him. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later, later we joined the others at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. We talked about that in Acts chapter 2. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day he kept on talking until midnight. So this is permission, right? 
Uh, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Great. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Okay, pause. <laughs> what do you do with this? This is the most bizarre story. So you have to picture the scene, though. Like, they're in an upper room. This young guy sitting in the window. It's not like our windows where there's, like, a window frame with glass in it. It's a hole in the wall. He's there. It's approaching midnight, so they've got the candles burning. So it's dim light. There's a room full of people, so it's getting warmer. It's oil lamps, so there's incense, so there's the aroma. And Paul's going, and he's just kind of lulling into a sense of sleep. And lo and behold, falls out the window, and he dies. <clears throat> Paul throws himself on him and then goes for dinner, right? You're just like, kind of, what's going on? <laughs> but there's just a little funny moment here to, to, to just reinforce what we've been talking about. You know, the book of Acts, we have to make decisions as we're reading. What's descriptive? What's describing how it was back then? And what's prescriptive for the church today? So what is Paul telling us we have to do? What's just describing the situation? So this passage is not prescriptive, right? We've not to talk for hours and hours and have people fall out the window and die. And more so, I just love the method of fixing the problem. So someone falls out a window, they splat three stories down on the ground, and Paul walks out and it says, threw himself on the guy, hugs him, and then it's like, he's alive! So um, <clears throat> I would stick with CPR. <laughs> I don't think they're prescribing how to deal with dead people by throwing yourself on them. But I do want to look at just a couple of Old Testament passages, because this is bizarre, and I don't want to just run past it and be like, what the heck is going on? Um, so 1 Kings 17, you've got this moment with Elijah where he meets this widow uh, through Elijah. She's blessed with a son, and then one day the son dies. And First uh, Kings 17, then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him and he lived. So Elijah picked up the child, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Um, on one more book into 2 Kings 4, Elijah has left. Elijah, Elisha has taken over. You get this moment. When Elisha reached this house, there was a boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed, lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. So this is not just a bizarre story where he just throws himself on this guy, hugs him, and then sends him out into the world while he has dinner. Um, this is Paul walking in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. He's seeing this happen. He's thinking about Elijah. He's thinking about Elisha, and he's imitating their faith um, to bring him back from the dead. And I think this story is sandwiched in here just as a reminder. Now, this is an example of what's happened. This physical example is a, is a reminder of what's going on spiritually. The sleepy are being awakened. The dead are being brought to life. This is the ministry of Jesus as his life is poured through his vehicle into the world. So it's just a good reminder of what's going on in the passage. So anyway, 
Moving on. <laughs> we went ahead. Uh, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos. And when we, uh, where we were going to take Paul aboard, he had made this arrangement because he was going to go there on foot. If it was Jesus, he'd just walk across the water. When he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went from there to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And we know by the way Paul ministers, and we know by what's going on in the chapters we've just read, that if he went to Ephesus... He loves these people so much he couldn't do anything but linger and minister and show the love of Jesus. Um, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came to the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. In every city, this is what he's been told. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And powerful moment as you take Paul, the guy that we know as the astir theologian, uh, uh, that becomes this beautiful, soft pastor uh, with deep affection. So, so what I want to do, we're going to fly through this. This, this chapter, in many senses, is just going to summarize and recap lots of what we've been talking about up till now. So I want to look at five things from Paul's life that are the example that he sets before these elders uh, as look at my way of life and copy this. And then there's four exhortations um, to the church. And these are all short and quick because it's, it's a summary. 
So let's look at Paul's example and what he says to these people. Um, we think when we hear elders, we're thinking like you've got a church and you've got a little board of people that have been placed over the church. This is more like the pastors of all of these little home churches all across the city that are being gathered together, called to shepherd their flock and work together to shepherd the greater flock. So this is him saying to the leaders of the church, we can just replace elders with leaders, to the leaders of the church, uh, what he did and, and what they've to aspire to. So the first element of Paul's example is sacrificial service. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Um, as soon as I saw the words humility and tears, I couldn't do anything but think of Jesus like on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane, full of humility, surrendering his will to the will of the Father, tears of blood dripping out of his eyes, sweat of blood out of his face the humility and the tears, I, I found myself wondering what the tears were that Paul was shedding. Was it his frustration at the church not doing what they're supposed to do? Is it the pain of the suffering and the beatings that he received as he tried to share the gospel with people? Is it, I mean, it says, I spent night and day with you trying to warn you and urge you with tears. Was it his awareness of the degree of suffering and sifting that they would have that moved him to tears? And then I think about the church in the West and we're like a tearless church. Right? Paul is on te in tears begging these people to grasp the gospel and to walk in it. And then we come into church and it's like, <laughs> just like it's an emotive faith. Um, Paul, full of humility and tears, sacrificing everything he had to take the gospel to these people. So if we want to copy Paul's example that he's telling these elders, he's saying, first thing to do, copy my sacrificial service. Be people of humility and tears uh, as you embrace the pain, the suffering, the frustration, the inadequacy, the loss that comes, and of course the joy that comes with sharing the gospel. Second thing in Paul's example we'll call unhesitant proclamation. I love this word in here. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. I did it in public. I did it house to house for two and a half years, going house to house, taking every opportunity to proclaim what they needed. I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He held nothing back. Are you as a believer, walking in unhesitant proclamation. Um, this is the example that Paul set before the church. This is why the church was successful. Now, remember, unhesitant, unhesitant proclamation does not mean take your values, your politics, your theology, your viewpoint, and declare it over the people out there. It's unhesitant proclamation of the message of grace the message of the gospel being poured out over the people. Unhesitant proclamation. Um, he goes on in this passage to talk about it's to Jews and Gentiles. He proclaimed without discrimination. Every person in front of him was an opportunity to receive the gospel. But again, we, we tend to get in this place where we, we, we are hesitant non-proclaimers, right? Uh, we have fear, we have doubt, we have worry, we have concern for how people will, will receive us, we have concern for what the results of it will be. Um, if we want to recover uh, an element even of, of what it was to walk like the original church, we've got to learn as a church to walk in unhesitant proclamation of everything, the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that we like, 
Not just the parts that push our agenda forward, but everything that God's word teaches. Um, a good little barometer for yourself. Ask yourself the question, how well do I do in the world at doing the full counsel of God to the people around me? So just think about when you're with people and you're talking about your faith. Like, do you have a narrow, like, I kind of say the same thing every time? Uh, or do you, are you the kind of person that has a breadth to your faith, proclaiming the full counsel of God to people? Now, we all have a calling and we all have a message that God has birthed in our heart. And so there's certain things that we'll emphasize in a particularly unique way that are important. God has birthed that message into you. But we've got to make sure we're doing that message, but that we're uh, declaring the full uh, the full counsel of God. Okay, third, third element, hard work and generosity. This comes up a lot in Acts, and I, and I just, I want to keep coming back to the importance of hard work, of the daily grind, of our workplace, of diligently uh, pursuing God and doing the things that we need. And this, this point, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. It's not hard work so that I can build a big house. It's not hard work so that we can grow a massive church. It's hard work so that I can give generously to the needy. It's the justice heart of God. We're working and, and, and we're producing wealth to be able to help those that have none. We're learning to stand strongly on our faith and the truth of God so that we can offer it to those who are broken. Um, are you a person at this point in your life, would you say, I'm working hard for Jesus? Or are you someone that's sitting back and just kind of letting others do it? And um, Paul's life and his example is such a challenge to us. Um, I think that I, I'm assuming that the language, like you know, we you do things with blood, sweat, and tears. I think Paul and Jesus are good examples of those phrases, like sweat and blood, and, and tears as they give themselves fully to be generous. It's what Joel was talking about at the beginning. Like we receive to give to others. It's a spirit of generosity, not just with our finances, with our time, with our heart, with our home, uh, with the truths that we've received. We are blessed to bless others. So we, if we're following Paul's example, we're people that are working hard, exerting our effort and our energy towards those good ends. Um, the fourth element, of Paul's example, deep affection. And this is the part I think gets so missed when people read Paul. He's the guy that is like smacking people over the heads with truth. He's confronting the sin in their life. He's, First Corinthians, he's problem solving all this brokenness in the church. He's disciplining people. It's tough. But then there are these moments all the way through his letters, these moments that you see in Acts, this deeply affectionate man. Like the, the letter to Philemon is one of my favorites. He says, you know, I'm sending uh, Onesimus back to you. He says, and with him, I'm sending my very heart. It's like I'm ripping out my heart by sending this guy to you. And he's like, he's going. And my heart goes with him. Like the level of affection that Paul exerts in the people. It says at the end of this, when he'd finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him, grieved that they would never see his face again. And, and remember, Paul's been here. It's, it's about two and a half years, maybe three, depending on how you calculate it. Two and a half years to three years with these people. And everyone's weeping and tears and sorrow and grief at the thought that they're never going to see this guy again. You don't feel that way to the person that comes in and hits you on the head with a two before, right? 
Uh, this is his deep love, his investment in them, his sacrificial giving to them, the hours going from home to home to home to encourage, to build them up, to send them out. I'm sure working hard to finance the debts to free people. Um, I'm sure taking the punishment to shield some other people, the, the things that he would have done to bless the community round about him. He's a man of deep affection. We need to lose this image of Paul as this hard, cold theologian. And remember this deep pastoral heart that was willing to say, like, I, I, I'm willing to lose my own life that my Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith. I'm willing to give up my salvation for these people, that deep affection that he walks in. Church, are we walking in deep affection for one another? Like when you walk into the room, are you like broken to help the needs of the people around about? When someone says, hey, we have a need, someone in our church needs to go to the hospital every day and we need people to drive, are you like, oh my goodness, I just wanna help. I wanna give sacrificially to help these people. And um, what is your affection level? And then what do we need to do to help change that if we're not walking in familial affection for one another? The, the fifth element of Paul's example, entrusting to God and his word. I, I put it this way because he, first of all, entrusts God and his word to the people. Uh, so he's coming in with this message, the truth of who he is and saying, I, I'm giving you this entrustment. But then he entrusts them to God and his word. This beautiful part, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. I've come in, I've ministered to you, I've invested in you, I'm leaving, I'm probably gonna die, you're never gonna see me again. But here's the deal, you don't need me. What you need is him and his word. And I always think these things are interesting. I just, I have moments where I go, okay, God, you had all of the words to choose from. Look, could have worded these things any way he wanted to. He could have said, I commit you to God and to the word of his truth, right? But he says, to the word of his grace. Like, that's the thing that transforms us. You can read the truth and not have it transform you. We need the grace of God working with the truth to transform us. And what's it to do? To build us up and give us this inheritance that he's called us to walk in. He has such a high trust in God's ability, God's power, um, and yet we sit and we, we look at Portland and we're going, Portland's going to pot. Like, God can't do anything here. We look at our family situations and go, my kid is walking away from Jesus. Like, uh, how do I fix this? Like, you entrust them to God and his message of grace, and that message of grace most often is gonna be ministered to them through your actions as you offer love and grace to them. No, in, in pre-service prayer, when we, when we got to the end and we're sharing the things God had put in our heart, Mike, uh, Mike Flagg was sharing, you know, just this, uh, God, he, he was struck by the abundance of what the resources God has available for us to overcome and to provide for all the things that we're trying to walk into. Um, God has abundance. Paul understood that. He's entrusting people to God in his word, entrusting the full abundance that God has to overcome the obstacles in your personal life, to overcome the obstacles that have kept this church inward focused, and to overcome the obstacles out there that make people resistant to the gospel. So number five, entrusting to God in his word. Four exhortations that he gives to the leaders. Hopefully this feels like a fire hydrant because it's, I'm sure how it was. I don't know if in this instance Paul sat there and preached till like 
four in the morning again. Um, I'm assuming he had less time and so gave him it like condensed. So, so that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so first exhortation he gives. So this is him with these leaders. He said, follow my example. Here's the things that I did when I was amongst you. Step back and evaluate your life. How like Paul are you living? Um, because if you're not seeing the fruit that you want to see in your life, it's probably because you're not living the Christ-like life that Paul was living. Um, but then when he's with the elders, he gives them just a few exhortations. This is what you have to do uh, as you're walking in the world. This is your job as leaders amongst God's people. First one, keep watch. He says, keep watch over yourselves. You're going to hear me say this so many times. We are very good at keeping watch over all of those people, right? That person's being grumpy. That person's not doing their job. That person didn't give this week. That person, that person likes the wrong person. That person's like advocating for the wrong policy. We love that. But he doesn't say keep watch over the world. He says keep watch over yourself. Like what's going on in your heart? Like are you walking the way of Jesus? Are you dealing with the sin as it's revealed? Or are you shoving it to the side? Why? Because you need to be an example to the flock. If we want to lead other people into a fuller expression of Jesus, we have to be walking into a fuller expression of Jesus. So a uh, little uh, vulnerable disclosure moment here. I'm, uh, I'm in this executive leadership training. It's fantastic. It's really transformative. They gave me this book to read, and at one point in this book, it's talking about forgiveness. And, it, and he defines forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I do. Like, someone hurts me, you cancel the debt. Like, slate's wiped clean. Good, let's move forward. Then the author go, goes on and says, forgiveness is saying, you broke it, I'll fix it. I was like, oh, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already canceling the debt, but you broke it, you fix it. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch till you fix the thing that you broke. He says, forgiveness is, you broke it, I'll fix it. He says, forgiveness is, the innocent one pays. Because if you, someone owes you a debt and you cancel the debt, you're paying. Jesus looked down, it's broken, you've broken it, I'll fix it. Jesus paid the cost for us. Um, so that to say I, there's a person in my life who hurt me, I've forgiven them, uh, but I've been sitting in a posture of, you broke it, you fix it. I read that thing the other day and I was like, dang. <laughs> ah, I don't like this part. It's a short message, hey, we need to grab coffee. Because he broke it and it's my job to fix it. Um, and why do I say that? Because keep watch. That book and that content exposed that I was only walking in partial forgiveness. I don't want to walk in unforgiveness. If I walk in unforgiveness, I'm going to lead the church in unforgiveness. If we want to be a church that's able to reconcile inside and able to reconcile the disparate groups of people out there to our God, that's not going to happen if we're not walking in reconciliation. Um, so keep watch. What are the issues in your life that you're putting off to tomorrow? This is the thing I've got to deal with. I'll do it tomorrow. Deal with it now. Keep watch over yourself. Um, he then goes on the second exhortation, part of that same passage. Be shepherds. So keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which you've been made an overseer. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That Christian that you don't like that gets on your nerves was purchased by the blood of Jesus. You're looking at this amazing gift that God's given to the church and saying, I don't want your gift. I don't like them. Don't like her. Eh, get rid of them. 
be shepherds. <laughs> Keep watch over yourselves in the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. When, when Paul is writing to Timothy and to Titus and he's talking about what are the requirements for eldership, he says he who desires to be an elder or an overseer desires a good thing. Like in the church, like you might not be looking going, I'm a spiritual elder of this congregation, so this doesn't really apply to me. Paul tells us that we're supposed to be aspiring to be the kind of person that is shepherding the flock. Um, an elder or an overseer or a leader in the church is not someone that's given a title. It's someone that's living out the shepherding heart of God amongst the congregation that we then go, this person is really shepherding people. Let's acknowledge their leadership here and celebrate the way they reveal the heart of God to our church. Are you desiring to be a leader or an overseer? Um, and, and, and if you are, are you living that kind of life in our congregation to shepherd people and lead them forward? Whether young or old, this should be the aspiration that we walk in, to be an overseer of God's people, leading them further into the heart of God. Third exhortation, be on your guard. Similar to the first one, the first one was keep watch over yourself. This is be on your guard against the stuff out there. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. So be on your guard. Are you aware that you could be a false teacher? Are you aware when you sit with a group of people from the church and you're uh, espousing truth, that the truth that you may be communicating could be lies? Do you know the word well enough? And do you have enough people speaking into your life that can point out that the thing you said wasn't true? Are you open to receiving that kind of feedback if it is? And in every country, we all, every country, every area, we all have our little ways that we're more uh, open to deception uh, in these things. There, there are people among us that could be false teachers. Now, here's the thing. We read a passage like this, and it's like you're either a true teacher or a false teacher. We do this with everything in Scripture. Like, you're, you're either walking with Jesus or you're not. The reality is we're like this, Right? <laughs> One minute you're out there espousing truth, building someone up. The next minute you're cussing someone out. One minute you're speaking this great truth over someone about God's heart for them. The next minute you're passing judgment and false truth over their life. One minute we're saying, I think this is what God wants for you. The next minute we're speaking false prophecy over their life and declaring things that God didn't say was for their life. We have to be careful of these things. Be on your guard. Know the truth. Saturate yourself in Scripture. Be in conversation. Be reading theologians, not just the ones that come from your very narrow stream of looking at things, but the broader stream of Christianity. What is, there's, there's a lot of orthodox stuff out there. There's some unorthodox stuff that's really fun to read. It's really challenging. Um, and, and it opens your eyes to see some things that you've been seeing incorrectly. But be on your guard. Watch what you're letting in. Watch who's in here and be attentive to the things that are being taught. You become a false teacher gradually. Uh, the more you walk in it. And, and a lot of us are false teachers occasionally. And, and I want to give you the invitation again. Like, that includes me. Like, my, my pattern is to stand up here and ground what we're doing in Scripture in the hopes that the things that I say are biblical. But there's going to be times when I'm going to say something 
And someone that knows scripture needs to come to me and say, hey, you said that today, but have you thought about this passage over here? Is that true? And then I need to come up the next week after praying and reflecting on it and going, hey, it was brought to my attention last week. I said this thing. It probably wasn't accurate. So let's look at a fuller version of this. So I want you to be holding me accountable to teaching the truth too. But you can only do that if you know the word, right? You can only know that if you have the spirit revealing the truth to you. So last point, fourth and final exhortation. It's not an exhortation he gives. It's part of his example, but it's the exhortation to us. He says, finish the race. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So, so run the race. Finish the race for the young here, young adults, young kids. Like This is part of finishing the race is what's the race you're running? He says, complete the task that was assigned. You're in a, a season of life where part of the job that we have as a church, part of the job we have as family is to walk alongside you and help you uncover uh, the, the race that's in front of you, the unique tasks that God has given you, and to help call out of you the gifts and skills that he's given to help impart to you the wisdom that you need to walk in it. For the old in the room, it's not too late, right? You are here because your task is not complete. When your task is complete, he'll take you. Until that point, you have work to do. So run the race, complete the task, and at the end of it all, finish well. We want to sit at the end like Paul and be like, I spent my all. I worked hard. I preached unhesitatingly. Like, I, I've guarded myself. I've, I've walked in good teaching. I've shepherded the flock. I've done it all. I finished the race. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, how in the middle you are, or if you identify as some other age in there, I don't know. Um, you have a job, and it's not to sit here in the room and worship and listen to a sermon and then go home. It's to take the, the message of Jesus, the message of grace to the world to transform the city that we're part of. It's to fall on our knees and call his will to being in the city that we're walking in. It's, it's, it's to be his agent calling into being these kids that don't even exist yet that are going to be the generation that leads our church forward. As Michelle Jones says, it's going to be us calling on God and partnering with him to take the homeless person living in the tent at the end of the street, uh, share the gospel so that God can raise them up to be a leader, putting a big tent in downtown Portland, leading multiple people to Jesus. This is what we're called to. Um, so run the race. And, and finish the race well. Let me pray. <laughs> ah, God, Scripture is amazing. The truths that you give us, the hope that you instill in us. God, I will never understand why you take broken, messed up people like us that speak lies, that, that flip-flop between praising you and cussing someone out, that, that walk in sin on sun, Saturday night and then come to worship at church on, on Sunday morning, that walk in unforgiveness, bitterness, lust, anger, resentment. You take us, you entrust us with your spirit, you give us the gospel, and then you wait to do your work in the world through us. God, I'll never understand it, but thank you for entrusting us with these truths. God, help us uh, to keep watch over ourselves. 
Help us to be on guard against false teachings. Help us to shepherd the flock and to aspire to be people who are leading others into the wholeness that you offer. God, help us to be a bit more like Paul. Help us to be people who are sent into the world as your ambassadors, bringing your grace and truth and transformation to the city. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.